Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. This is the second half of our conversation on Book 6. Uh, today we will deal with Augustine's friend, Olypius, and what exactly had captured their curiosity. So we hear a little bit about how Augustine understands sin and our soul's um, uh, captivatedness to its desires and the different kind of desires that Augustine looks at as negative and positive. Uh, because for Augustine, we are not only thinking things, we are f desiring things. And maybe most especially, we are desiring things. Um, so we will uh, explore that a little bit in this episode. We've had a few different um, contributors on Patreon. We would continue to ask for your support on patreon.com slash A-H-O-C-T, A-H-O-C-T. That would be very appreciative, uh, appreciated. Um, if you also would uh, rate and uh, like uh, rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook, um, that would also be very helpful. We also have a Twitter account that I'm trying to use a little bit, um, at TheologyXIAN. Um, that's our, uh, the, my Twitter for the History of Christian Theology podcast. Um, so we hope that you enjoy this episode, and I hope that it's uh, beneficial to your understanding of Augustine and um, ultimately to uh, the human condition, uh, because Augustine is a great thinker about the human condition. So we hope that you enjoy this episode. Here's the second half. Um, all right, I was going to... I was going to move to curiosity um, and Olypius. Um, that was one thing that we had a long conversation about uh, because Augustine's friend – well, actually one of Augustine's students. So there's there are three people that Augustine lives with um, in Milan, uh, Olypius and Nebridius, uh, two other North Africans. Olypius is quite younger than him but ultimately takes a post um, uh, as a bishop before Augustine, so it makes progress in the faith much faster than Augustine. Uh, but all three of them live in Carthage, and Olypius is carried away uh, with his love for the games. And as I recall, this was a conversation that uh, that Tom was pretty interested in, um, insofar as it sort of uh, it sort of mimics our um, uh, our own. Um, Time at times where we talk, you know, think about movies and think about culture and entertainment, um, and what is a Christian's relationship to some of those this, this uh, is, sorts of things. But but Augustine is. Uh, uh, I was going to say that? this is yet again a perfectly discuss, uh, time discussion because when we also first tried to record this, there was an MMA fight about to happen, and there is again UFC uh, two twenty eight is tonight. And who's, I definitely plan on watching it. <laughs> and so this, oh, uh, Tyrone Woodley is uh, fighting Darren Till for the welterweight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, right. Anyway. I mean, here's the thing. <laughs> I mean, Christians took it as obviously bad to watch gladiatorial combat. Right. Um, and I think for obvious reasons in gladiatorial combat, people often died and, 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 there is something that just seems wrong about the bloodlust factor that is being uh, stirred up in these kinds of things. Uh, and I, I mean, I watch UFC too, so don't take this as a, as a criticism per se, but it is something I've thought about because there is this impulse we have. We want to watch UFC. And although I actually think I do, because I'm a former wrestler, I do care about the technique used and about the sport itself i love a good knockout i love a bloody right. match 
You know, I mean, those things actually do appeal to me. Or I think about, for instance, hockey games. I actually like hockey, like the game. A lot of people say they only watch it for the fights. I really do like the game and I like it well played. But my blood also boils when the fights come out, right? And I get excited about the fights. And when a guy walks away with a bloodied nose, in my mind, generally, it's a more exciting fight. And, and when I when I think about these impulses, I go, oh, these are bad impulses in me. Like, this is not what I should want. And you throw in the fact, and I've wrestled with this because I've mentioned this on the show before, that I am a film lover. I mean, I'd like to consider myself an amateur cinephile. And I do love violent filmmakers. Um, and, you know, I've heard people say things like, uh, oh, well, a Christian would never watch a Quentin Tarantino film or something. And when I hear that, I'm always like, uh, and I, I just kind of like shrink away into the background because I don't want to acknowledge that I've watched his films and kind of enjoy <laughs> many of them, even though they are just chock full of the most overt violence or the fact that I actually like horror film as well. So it's like Augustine just comes out and takes it as a given that this is a fleshly impulse that ought to be uh, quenched. And actually in Olypius, his friend, Olypius, he, you know, this is Olypius's weakness, whereas Augustine's is sexual. Olypius's is his love for the for the games. Right. Oh, and Augustine takes it beyond that. It's not just gladiatorial games. It's also just like things like chariot racing and things like that, that I have a hard time understanding what's wrong with, with it, you know? Well, I think chariot racing was insanely dangerous uh, too, right? Yeah, dangerous, but isn't there something a little different about being, like, doing a dangerous profession versus doing an impl- explicitly violent profession? I don't know, maybe not. I mean, I guess you could bring up, yeah, NASCAR. Some, that's, that's true. Yeah, some NASCAR, people watch NASCAR because NASCAR of the wrecks, which is horrible, right? I mean, like... Obviously, you don't want those guys to get in wrecks. That's a life-threatening yeah. thing. Um, but, yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah. So it seems over the top. Uh, but if you – I mean, I don't know. We could look uh, in, in book six, um, chapter eight, and then sort of part 13. Um, this, in mine, it's like a second longer paragraph. Speaking about Olypius, for when he saw that blood – he drank deep of its barbarity and did not turn himself away, but fixed his gaze and drank in the torments and was unaware and found gratification in the wickedness of the contest and became drunk on the pleasures of blood. Now he was no long now he was no longer the same person as when he had come. He was one of the crowd that he had joined, a true companion of the friends who had taken them there. <laughs> Why say any more? He watched, he shouted, he burned. He took with him from that place the madness that goaded him to return, and not just with those friends who had first carried him away, but even more than them and taking others along. Um, and I, I, you know, to me, this this actually seems a little bit more of like um, I don't know that this is necessarily like a, a scriptural principle, but I guess it could be consonant with one. But it sort of reminds me of like the Platonist who's too worried about being carried away by the passions. Uh, or the Stoic, maybe I should rather say um, that that you know you 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 let uh, you let passion you know uh, overrule your reason, and I think he's worried that the what what happens to the crowds um, who get caught up in the fury and the frenzy, um, and I, I I actually don't know about this historically, uh, but if I were to make the case for Augustine, I might compare it to something like 
in soccer uh, in England, not so much right now, but in the 80s and 70s when hooliganism thrived, you would go and you'd watch this sport and you'd get whipped into a frenzy. And then afterwards, you'd go and you'd fight the opponent. Um, and so, you know, what you, and probably if you were just walking down the street and if you had no connection to this game, you wouldn't just randomly attack someone, but you've been caught up in the fury and the bloodlust and the, and the, 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 your passions that you're not thinking straight and you go just run out and start fighting other people. Um, and so, you know, maybe at its worst, Augustine is worried that Olypius is just so caught up. His, his reason is gone. Um, and he's, he's part of this, this, you know, bloodlust that that's all. That's my, I mean, it's again, I, I don't watch MMA. I watch hockey, but, um, which well, I do think a part of it aspects. too is the idolatry. Um, I mean, but, uh, Augustine yeah, that references that is that when you do get caught up in these kinds of games, they come to dominate your life. Like they're kind of, and, and that's, I think almost also what he's trying to convey in this, uh, in the qu- passage you just quoted, because when Olympias, the Augustine tells it like Olympias was like forced to go to the game. Like he had taken essentially a vow that he would no longer go to these games. And then all of his friend, all of a sudden his friends almost, it almost sounds like they like kidnap him and force him in. And then, what Olympias decides to do is to close his eyes and his ears so that he won't see, but he caught a glimpse of blood. And once he caught that glimpse of blood, he turns into a raging maniac because he loves it so much. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. It sounds like his eyes were closed and then he heard the crowd yell. And so then yeah. he like opens his and then from then yeah. on. And so just, Augustine is, I think know, to a certain degree, partly also referencing the idolatrous nature of these things, which for me, I totally get because sports films, uh, these things have absolutely carried me away. I mean, I can say that a good chunk of the last, uh, 30 years of my life and I'm 42, um, have all been actually more. If you count movies, I guess, I mean, have my whole life has just been one obsession after another that relates to either sports or films like, so these entertainments in particular. And and so, I mean, and I have to say, I've frequently wrestled with, ought I stop doing this altogether? Or if not altogether, ought I stop watching Tarantino films or ought I stop watching uh, MMA fights? Or, you know what I mean? Like finding certain ones that maybe are too violent. Or These are real things that I wrestle with. And what I love about this is it just shows that this is and has always been a like an issue in the church that people have wrestled with. I mean, you can't really speak cavalierly on these issues as if we've figured out the right thing to do because every, like this is just what part of human nature, what we have to wrestle with. Um, when we, when I'm Christian. no, go ahead. You know, and even, um, Oh, sorry. Um, but even a more direct corollary to this is just the, since the internet exists now, you can just look up, the craziest crap on the internet nowadays. I mean, MMA is more pertinent to my life because I don't really go look up crazy crap on the internet. But I remember when I was in high school, people looked up snuff videos um, or people would try to find like the execution of, you know, Saddam Hussein or whatever video. And like, there's definitely, I, I think probably there's still basically just as dark and weird because uh, the gladiatorial games were pretty, like gruesome in a lot of ways and really cruel. And, but there's all that still on the internet if you want to go try to find it. And so there still is a, 
probably a, 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 a probably, I guess, correspondingly as perverse. I mean, cause I, I guess it's debatable in, in your mind, whether MMA is the exact same thing. Um, but we, I, there's certainly at least some similarities that should maybe make one question. I've definitely heard of Christians being totally against watching MMA and I have got, I've wrestled with it, but, uh, but in terms of just what's on the internet, there's a direct correlation of what he's talking about. And there probably are people who, I don't know, maybe secretly Google these things or something. I don't know. Well, I think um, my, my thought would be the one difference that Augustine would share. Um, and this is drawing a little bit on uh, James K. A. Smith, um, he, who wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom. And um, he talks a lot about cultural liturgies. And I think for um, – and just in general, one of the things that makes Augustine interesting is uh, is Augustine is a thinker and he's an intellectual and we talk a lot about the mind. But Augustine is very aware about the powers of worship um, and the powers of practices. Um, so you are more than what you think. You are also what you desire. Um, and that's why Christians have caritas, which is you know holy love and desire. Um, and so we are, you know, this is part of, um, this is part of the difference between just being, uh, you know, than thinking that whatever's wrong with the world can be fixed with the right amount of education rather than a change of will. Um, you have to change what you love. Um, and so the things that you do in a non-cognitive way can influence what you love and your passions. And so I think he's worried about Olypius, um, because not only does he see bloody things, but he's a part of a whole bloodlust liturgy, um, the going to the stadium with friends, the getting carried away with the, the songs and the chants, um, being in a stadium, all watching one thing and the power, the captivating, um, uh, emotional, um, and, and non-cognitive elements of that whole moment. You know, it's like, when everyone goes to the baseball stadium and we all stand and take off our hats and put our hands over our hearts and we worship <laughs> the American flag and we sing a, a song um, to our country, um, that is a cultural liturgy that shapes us to love patriotism. Um, and, and then we sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game and we all cheer when the closer comes in to save the game. And that's a cultural liturgy that helps us all to, to worship baseball and the Cardinals to win. And, you know, that's, that's, that's where I get caught up in it. Um, you know, and, but there's like, but it's, it's, it's even different than just like having seen someone throw a pitch and knowing that, or someone throw a punch. It's the whole process, the whole liturgy that shapes deeper aspects of the human um, yeah, nature said, than just the mind said. and just what you see. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, and that's that's a that's what my worry is about myself when I go to the baseball game, getting carried up and taken away, and worshiping whether or not you know worshiping the Cardinals and. Uh, yeah. So, uh, that's, that's the worry, uh, there. Um, you know, I, um, 
Let's see. So we could. Uh, I think one other thing that we might have talked about, bef- and and this uh, will also probably preclude us from getting to book seven uh, today. But he does talk about uh, his mother preparing for him a match. And sends away, um, sends and he home takes his another concubine, concubine in the right? meantime. So, and I believe um, did he have he and, had his son with his first concubine, correct? That's correct. And, and you know, we have to say that we don't – we're using the te- term concubine uh, because Augustine never names them. And there are various reasons why Augustine might have never named them. Um, and, and uh, you know, maybe maybe he's a misogynist. I don't – I mean that's one interpretation. Uh, maybe he just, uh, you know, doesn't recognize women. Um, I, I think that's – you know, I guess that could be uh, the – you know, I think it has more to do with the fact that he was writing in a time when that woman was still alive, um, and and that he probably wanted to protect the, her identity. So he never mentions any of these women's name, um, and it also probably protected the woman who was uh, his mother found as a match. Um, uh, you know, from uh, you know By from the way, any kind of, part uh, of probably a good so that she um, can find another man because he ultimately doesn't ever marry her. Could carry on with Olypius because he brought up Olypius as one who had a weakness. That weakness was for games, but Olypius had a strength when it came yeah. to sex that Olypius kind of conveys himself as like a guy who just doesn't really care about sex at mm. all and could really do without it. Um, and I think in fact, I'm correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just trying to remember back, but tells a story of how Olypius actually did in fact have sex just to see whether he would like it and really didn't was like, yeah, I could take it or leave it. And that's important because Olypius of course is going to become a Christian right. And he's going to desire to live a celibate life in a community like with Augustine and so forth, where they can sit around and discuss theology, discuss the Bible, things of that nature. And Augustine is going to reflect on how that to him was the hard thing. Like in his mind, celibacy was the thing he couldn't do. And he even said that about Ambrose. He said everything about Ambrose and Ambrose's life was desirable for emulation, except that Ambrose was a celibate. And so Augustine was like, I just, I basically, Augustine said he liked sex too much uh, to, to give it up. And he'd had this woman who was living with him, who was his concubine. She was not his lawful wife. And so while this woman is living with him and has given him a son, uh, his mom starts to seek a wife for him, um, you know, a, that would be a proper marriage. And Augustine kind of thinks that he has to go that route. Uh, but I should add, uh, Ch- Charles or Ch- Chad. I just called you Charles because I see your name here on the because <laughs> your email address is here on the screen. Anyway, uh, I should add, Chad. You called her a yeah. woman, but this was a point of our discussion. She by she is two years under marrying age, which the footnote I have says marrying age is twelve. So that would put her at ten, and Augustine would have been what at this time? How old? So a thirty-year-old, uh, he right? says it's a good uh, match. Uh, He's like, I think, yeah, I think he, he met her, this ten-year-old, this ten-year-old, and he said, yeah, he thinks it would be a good match. So that was kind of a point of discussion because, I mean, on the one hand, I'm so I'm not a cultural relativist, right? Uh, I don't think that the fact that something was normal for a culture automatically makes it okay. Um, so this is something that has bothered me. On the other hand, I also know that your culture can have deep psychological impact on you. And the fact that nobody had ever at any point uh, would have conveyed to him the idea that this was bad, uh, you know, 
does, of course, affect it. I mean, it affects the pressures he's experiencing and what his expectations are and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it is still something that deeply troubled me when I thought about it. So. Yeah, well, and I think my point was, as I understand it, he doesn't, I mean. No, he would marry I, her I think after marrying If she was two years be before 12, marrying right? age, that doesn't mean he so, marries her then. I think that uh, was just the plan that, is that he would roughly – that he would marry yeah. her when she became of marrying age, which would be when she was 12. And, and and I should add, this is still the way that a lot of kind of older cultures that still practice arranged marriage do it. I had a friend who lived in a village in Nepal, and when he was uh, there, the priest came to the village to kind of talk with and meet with all the girls ages 8 to 10 years of age because they were coming close to their marrying age. So this is something that is still like practiced. I mean, this would have been no doubt something they would have seen normal. So it seems to me that no, Augustine one does not describe this as a sexual relationship. Obviously he does not have sex with her, but also he is thinking about it as a sexual relationship in the sense that he thinks he needs to get married because he does need to continue having sex. He cannot live the celibate life. This girl seems like a good match to him. I presume that he plans on marrying her in two years when she's 12. So I still, I'm still troubled by that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a little weird for sure. I wonder, I mean, if you get married, was this still oh, the time when you had to immediately I, I don't know consummate what, I mean, I think marriages that just as well? Always been, like right? as soon People as you got do. married? consummate marriages when they get married i yeah i guess i just unaware actually of the custom now that i think about it i didn't i'm not really sure the history of it but yeah i mean he would have sex with her i'm sure i mean like i don't i yeah i, I mean i don't know <laughs> like i mean they'd be married i think part of the reason he talks about her not being of marriageable age is the point well part of the point was you actually wait until that is, you know, that you might be able to have children. Right. Um, and so that's what, that's what they're waiting on. Um, she, she meets all the other qualifications uh, for, for, you know, Christian family, wealthy family, North African family, whatever else, you know, Monica has in mind. Um, and then, yeah, you just have to wait yeah. until she my, can have children. My, um, my hope so, yeah. was that it's my pretty, footnote was wrong. Pretty good. Marrying age uh, and, yeah, at that time in Milan sure. was a little bit older than what they're saying. I mean, granted, it's always going to be a little troubling, but if marrying age is 18 as opposed to 12, that's a lot more palatable to me, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing that we talked about in the last uh, passage a little bit was, you know, he felt very strongly for the woman, the mother of the Deodatus, uh, whatever her name is. In book 6, 1525, he says, That woman with whom I used to share my bread was torn from my sides on the ground that she stood in the way of my marriage. Uh, my heart was so attached to her, was broken and pierced, leaving a trail of blood. She returned to Africa, vowing to you that she would never have another man. She left behind with me, my son, she had born to me. I was wretched. Um, I could not follow even a woman's example. Uh, and that's when he says he, um, he chose another woman, not, but not to be his wife. Um, he, I mean, he loves this woman. Um, and again, if, you know, 
I, I don't know. I guess whatever you might take away from Augustine theologically, um, the one thing that always strikes me, and and maybe actually this is will be important to keep in mind uh, when we get to his conversations about predestination um, and what God knows and things. Um, he is not like Augustine is a, a deeply a passionate man. Um, everything about him is extremely feeling. He's never cold and morose and uncaring and unfeeling. Like, I mean, you know, we, I don't know if we dwelled on it very long, but book four, he talks about when he loses his friend, it was like losing part of his soul. Um, and, and like every, and, and when he describes God, he calls God, his sweetness, his delight, his joy, um, on every page of Augustine's writings while they are deep and intellectual, um, and, and sort of philosophical or theological, they're deeply passionate um, and his love for God and the church and this woman and his son and his mother are passionate. He's ne- you could never call him a stoic in the way that we say that in English. Yeah, certainly. Hey, did anyone else notice this is sort of on a different topic, but the interesting bit uh, in that section 23, right before talking about marrying the young or being pledged to be married to that woman, it says, he talks about Monica being able to tell the difference between a revelation and a mere dream because of an odor. I have a vague recollection, but I don't. Did everyone see that? I thought that was really. Yeah, so I see it. Yeah, she insisted that she could tell the difference between your granting some revelation and her own soul imagining it by means of some kind of smell which she was unable to describe. Very interesting. And you know what's funny uh, is that I've hung around some quite charismatic circles before, and I've heard stuff like this. And I almost wonder if it's inspired I, by I, this I would or find if it, it's like... I, I would think that some sort in of terms of charismatic circles, <laughs> that is that is people who belong to kind of charismatic or Pentecostal backgrounds, they probably haven't read a lot of Augustine, honestly. Right? So I doubt it's inspired. I doubt it's... I doubt it's like inspired in the sense that they read it and then, yeah, you know. I, well, I was I was picturing like older, like older charismatic groups had. It was it was more of a tradition that got passed down, like they had heard it Maybe. from someone else. Uh, I mean, the early Pentecostal groups came this. out of the Second Great it, Awakening. It was more and like generally. Yeah the second great awakening advocated like an anti-intellectual spirit. And so there, there just kind of wasn't a time. That's not to say that you don't have intellectual Pentecostals and charismatics, nor is it to say that you don't have uh, educated ones. You do. They, they definitely exist, but there hasn't been a time when the movement itself has been principally academic, if that makes sense. So I, I could be wrong, but I, I doubt that you have even in the founders of the movements, these people who are reading a lot of Augustine. Yeah. Um, just for, for what it's worth in the Latin, um, she, uh, sapore. Uh, so, um, it's by some kind of taste, um, I don't know why mine and yours both use smell, uh, but the word sapore is, doesn't generally refer to smell. It doesn't have olere, olet, the, the, ten, the typical Latin words for smell. It is actually the word more for taste. 
um, sapere is the verb uh, that it comes from. Um, so like uh, we'd say, uh, well, bene sapiat um, in Latin is, um, is like bon appetit in French, like have a good, have a good meal, uh, hope it tastes well. Um, and, and that's how you say in Latin, hope it tastes well, bene sapiat. Um, and that's the, that's the, the word that she uses there. So you might even say some kind of taste, um, which I don't know if that makes it any easier to understand what it means, but it, I, I just thought I'd say that it's nescio quo sapore. Um, yeah. I don't know what kind of taste or, or hmm. yeah. I just thought it smell. was, it was just so like, I don't know. It was just so interesting. <laughs> I have nothing hey, else Jeff, to say about it. I just thought it was last so weird. Time we were together, kind of picking back <laughs> really? up off of this, yeah. you know, his decision to get married and his desire not to be celibate. Can we ground anybody kind of in the situation as far as where we are historically on the celibacy chain? It's it's something that's still unclear to me as to when celibacy became the practice for priests in the Catholic Church. But one thing that I think is like an interesting thing is that of course the Eastern Orthodox never embrace that habit for priests. They do for monks and for bishop. Like before you can be a bishop, you have to be uh, a, you have to be celibate, but in general, the clergy could be married in the Eastern Orthodox church. Do we have a sense of where we are in the evolution of that process? Um, well, um, so, um, yeah, so they, there's, I mean, the origins do go back to Paul and Jesus. Um, they go back to, um, this sense in the late third, early fourth century that to be a very committed Christian, um, to fully give oneself to the study of scripture and to the pursuit of God that one had to be celibate um that does not become the um the you know that does not become the uh the norm necessarily but that's sort of, or well i guess that does sort of become a norm but it's not regulated um rather it's um is there is there a definite rather point it's, uh, when, it's, it's as just far sort as you of know, I mean, this is something like most people who that are really we can go do we'll this. maybe could do um, some research I mean, on where are, it becomes canon law where it's like isn't it the Latican so uh the 12th Lattering, century at the first Latican council yeah, la- um, yeah it was like Lateran Lateran yeah, that's kind of the that's usually kind of a turning point for this. Yeah, the, so eleven, eleven, so the twelfth century. A real quick Google, I see this timeline. So I don't know how real this is, but you know, supposedly in ten seventy four, Pope Gregory the seventh said anyone to be ordained must first pledge celibacy. But gotcha. but then after but it that, it became official at the yeah the Lateran Council. Um, um, they just are the ones who so, kind of identify it as a rule. Um, yeah, that's right. Well, they and the reason they have to identify it as a rule is because it wasn't um, everywhere. It wasn't necessarily standard, right? There'd be no reason to make it law. I mean, well, or at least it seems like historically that there were priests who were marrying and having children. And so finally, one of the uh, Pope Gregory um, just 
you know, he's like, okay, let's, I'm putting my foot down. We're going to be done well, with this. Well, and that's, that's um, if you're going to be part of the, I mean, committed that, of the course, church, takes, you're going to be 1078, to that's after the Great Schism. So that would make sense why the Eastern Orthodox Church have never mandated celibacy for right. their priesthood. I mean, it doesn't actually become mandated until after the schism. Uh, and of course, much that we've already read, hi, I mean, over the course of this podcast, highlights the value of yeah. celibacy. Like, clearly many have valued it, right? I mean, we've we've already read stuff from the Desert Fathers. We've read, you know, I mean, so there's these early kind of um, uh, nascent forms of monasticism where people are praising celibacy and are recognizing it that, or recognizing in it an opportunity to live a more wholly devoted life, so to speak, to Christ. But it's not regulated. I, I think it's interesting, though, because with Augustine, his, the stuff he said about Ambrose, right, when he talks about how he admired Ambrose, but the one thing he couldn't do is live that celibate life, you, you almost get this sense, and maybe this is something that was starting to take place, this sense that people had where they felt like, oh, we probably shouldn't be priests if we're going to get married or something like that. Almost like this is being done in practice and it is becoming kind of almost like a custom, a most myorum, right? The customs of the ancestors. It's just the thing we do. Yeah. Well, I, the last, the last, I, I just thought uh, this, this, maybe we can use this as a tag even in our uh, podcast, but at the very end, 1626, 1626, he says, nor could I be happy without friends, even following the sensual experience that for me consisted then and the maximum possible profusion of pleasures of the flesh. Certainly I loved those friends of mine unconditionally. And I knew that they loved me unconditionally in, in, in return. Um, and, uh, I say, I say that just because he, uh, you know, I say that could be a tag for the podcast, but just, uh, how important friends are to August Augustine and he couldn't have been happy without friends. Um, and so he loves Olypius, he loves Nebridius. Um, and I guess Ambrose, he doesn't quite count as a friend in the same way yet. Um, uh, but, um, but people and having people around him who help him towards, um, God is is always critical for Augustine and uh, and necessary for for conversation and for um, helping him uh, be properly oriented towards God. But anyway, I thought that was you know again just sort of you know one one thing that's that's very clear throughout this book though is that um, Augustine it's not a purely inter- I mean it is internal but people are huge to him his community and the people that are around him are of the utmost importance. Yeah. No, and, and this doesn't even have to be in the podcast, but I, I thought it was kind of cool that in section 24 there that, that he, him and his friends yeah, decided no, to basically sure. live that's in a, a, a philosophical that's a, commune. Kind of where he goes with this. I mean, he, he <laughs> yeah. definitely conveys this idea, the same kind of idea that essentially Aristotle had, that the best kind of life is a life of contemplation and philosophical pursuit, which these guys seem to want to do, right? I mean, they seem to want to live together in philosophical uh, consideration and speculation. That's like their ideal life. It's not this, you know, and it's not the same thing, of course, but it just reminds me of like, you know, me with my grad student friends today, um, like on Fridays after colloquium. And it kind of reminds me of your old, uh, college stories when you're a philosophy major, Tom, of just like 
being <laughs> just being a young person just wanting to just talk philosophy all the time. Well, and it's why we do this podcast. And, I mean, I don't know. People don't really. I, I think. Yeah. I mean, the fact anyway. that we yep. have people downloading us and <laughs> and at least a few listening. Yeah. I don't. I mean, in my mind, part of me is like, wow, I can't believe that people actually are listening. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a negative way, like because at the end of the day, the real reason we did this podcast was that we're three friends who know, who don't live close together anymore, but who want to keep talking. So this gave yeah. us like a content that we could focus on and a yeah. an opportunity to kind of commit to talk. And last year when we took essentially a, hi- a hiatus off of the podcast, we didn't talk that much, or at least not certainly not nearly as much. And uh, yeah, and it's nice to be able to come back together and talk with you guys. Yep. No. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I've said this uh, before, but, you know, that's one of the I mean, you know, I've been around more and more schools now. Um, and, you know, one of the things that was incredible about Ambrose was um, just that we were all put in, you know, we were all just put together. And for whatever reason, uh, David chose to hire a lot of philosophy people. And so whenever we had a minute, we would just discuss anything, whether it was something a student said, something we read in a paper uh, or in the newspaper or, or uh, in the news or something, you know, just constantly able to have like really deep and interesting conversations. Um, and that's a, that's a great, it's a great gift. I mean, and, and I think exceedingly rare. Um, and, you know, you just, it does seem like one of those things that's just not around at most middle schools or high schools or something. There aren't just teachers there who are constantly curious, um, you know, and constantly want to, want to think through things deeper, or have a better perspective on things or whatever. Like, I think, you know, I think that is just, I feel like I got really rare. lucky because really the only reason, I mean, no one approached me to do an internship at Ambrose. I want, I just messaged Tom one day and was like, Hey, yep. do you want some, you want to meet up? And then I offered him free labor basically. And, and I only did it because I just had heard Tom speak before and knew he had a philosophy degree, thought he was funny and thought, I thought like that that would be cool. Just knew he, but I had no idea, of course, that like you were working. Yeah. So that was, it was definitely cool. Definitely. I Well, and I've come to like hate grad school. God gave us a gift at that time. Like I have, I mean, I have a new, like basically a guy who's taken your guys's role at the Ambrose school. Um, and he's young and he's also the Latin teacher there now. And I have this fear that now at some point, cause he studied philosophy as well, that he's going to, you know, someday go to grad school and then he'll be gone. You know what I mean? Like it's the mm. desire to sit around and talk about this kind of stuff is rare amongst people. Well, let me add not just the desire to sit around and talk about it, but also the capacity. Yeah. To talk about. True. Um, and I, when I say that, I mean, on the one hand, because to what we talked about earlier, sometimes yeah. people, whether for lack of training or capacity, have not developed like the reasoning skills, so to speak. But even maybe more than that, it's that people probably cling too passionately to certain ideas and views. And it doesn't it basically hinders them from being fair to other ideas and seriously considering them or entertaining them. And that's probably the bigger thing actually that I've experienced is it's like people won't entertain other thoughts 
It's not that they can't, they just won't. And therefore, you know, conversations can get killed really quickly. Oh yeah, hundred percent. That's, that's my experience. Um, yeah, it's, there's probably some reasoning training in there too. I remember my logic teacher. Well, I think we had the same logic teacher yeah, me too. maybe cause I had, um, I had Cortens, but he, yeah, but he said, uh, people think it's like th- they're just born with the ability to reason, but he said it's a, it's more like math. Like you have to learn it. And he said, you'd be a crappy, you'd be crappy at doing arithmetic <laughs> if you didn't go to school the same way people are crappy reasoners. <laughs> and, uh, I, that always has stuck with me because it makes me realize that I'm not just like, you know, magically gifted or anything at reasoning. Um, there's definitely a lot to, it's a learned skill and there's definitely a, there is definitely a unique thread with uh, philosophers, especially conversations with philosophers. But anyway. Well, this would, now I, I, I was going to try to tie it up, but all I, I have to at least say, I have to at least say, like, I think it's, it is amazing. And this is why I love virtue ethics um, and studying the ancients on virtue and, and uh, which is to say, nothing is it's it's work um nothing is taken for granted like we like we like things that just happen oh he just happened to make the right decision in the moment he had inspiration or he just is like that that's just how he is well it i mean you know i'm not saying that there aren't people who are naturally good reasoners or who are uh you you know whatever or who are maybe more have some proclivity towards it but but no it's a lot of work uh, and, and so it's not, none of this stuff happens by chance or I heard someone even the other day talking about the constitution and the founding of America. And, P- and he said, people wanted to pretend like <laughs> it was just magic, um, that all of a sudden someone made a really good constitution and thus America was born. Um, and we talk about it like it was this great mystery. It could only happen once. And he's like, no, they reasoned and they thought, learned philosophy and they read a lot of other people and they thought long and hard and worked really hard at it because they thought it was worth it. Um, and, you know, it's like, it's not an accident and nothing is just by chance. And we got to stop sort of pretending like it's all just static or it's all just something you're born with. Like, no, so a lot of these things are slow, difficult. Um, and, and you don't always yeah. know the well, reward it's funny you bring until up you the, get to the end. Just, you know, um, the, fa- the framing of the constitution. I, I mean, given just the, absolute insanity that has been this past political week, um, which is just at a level that is just absolutely out of control. Right. I mean, (laughs) I am to a point where I am so unbelievably sick of it all. And I just can't imagine that most of us aren't, (laughs) you know, like it is just like, I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't, I, it's like watching high schoolers fight on national television all the time. And, and the well-being of our country is at stake. But having said all that, um, I've heard so many people talk about what the founders intended and how, you know, one thing is the founders, of course, they put in that hard work and they also fought like crazy. You know what I mean? Like, let us not forget that, I mean, people speak about the founders as if there was this like universal agreement, almost again, as if being intelligent and educated and what have you is going to make you come to the same conclusions. And of course, that's not what you see. You see people who fought like crazy 
And to the point of, you know, it goes well beyond anything we could fathom. I mean, the former vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr, shot and killed the founding treasurer of the United States in a duel, Alexander Hamilton. You know what I mean? Like, that's how bad it got. So it's like one of the things kind of, I guess, to two of the points you guys made is this idea that it kind of challenging that idea that that coming to consensus and agreement and actually drawing conclusions intelligently is just done easily without some kind of actual argument and, and fighting through things, you know? Thanks for listening to A History of Christian Theology. Please rate us and review us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. Um, we would really appreciate it. We'll be back next week. Um, it'll actually just be me and Trevor Adams. So that's Chad Kim and Trevor Adams. Thank you very much. Bye.